Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Thinking Leader Podcast. Now, you might be thinking, that guy doesn't sound intelligent enough to be Bryce Hoffman, and you're quite right, I'm absolutely not. My name is Producer James. I'm normally behind the scenes listening to these interesting conversations, picking out snippets and highlights that are going to work for clips across social media and all that kind of good stuff, and making sure that we have an enjoyable audio experience. But once in a while, uh, I get bought off the subs bench, in dire situations when Bryce is absolutely categorically not available or, or Marcus isn't either, I get bought in as a, as a super sub and maybe not even a super sub, maybe just a sub. Um, but there we go. It is what it is. But it's my great pleasure to not only to get to produce this podcast, but once in a while I get to ask these guys some questions as well. So um, today I'm delighted that I'm with Marcus. Good afternoon. Good evening to you, sir. How the devil are you? I'm very well, James. Great to see you again. And you are indeed a super sub. Do not put yourself down. I love these conversations. Super sub. He's off, <laughs> he's off the bench. He's off the bench. But Indeed. what I love to do within these conversations, because obviously I get the opportunity to listen live to the chats you have with your guests. And then obviously me and my team back in London then edit those podcasts together. So I effectively get to listen to the content twice. And some, you know, in, in a lot of instances, there's, you know, some amazing people who do amazing things out in the world. Um, you know, the weaponization of trade was a recent episode. Uh, and, oh, and Rose Fast was an incredible episode about chocolate conversations. And I, I get to hear these top line chats with people who are, you know, the absolute cream of the crop in their space. And I think sometimes as a, um, just an average Joe, I'm like, oh, I'd love to dive into how the, the psychology of this <laughs> stuff actually works. Um, so that, that's what I'm going to, you know, selfishly do. This is effectively, you guys are going to listen to a podcast, which is just me asking the questions that I, you know, getting the answer to the questions that I've wanted to know off the back of listening to previous episodes. So I think before cool. we get started into sort of the psychology of red team thinking, et cetera, I think we need to get some context of your background because, you know, for, for full transparency, I was chatting to Marcus just about a snippet of his career and he's blown my mind. So I think it's really interesting <laughs> to find out, you know, how did you get to the point where you are now, you know, one of the most in-demand strategic consultants in, you know, for big businesses? How did we get to where we are today? Wow, that, that's quite the journey then. Okay, I'll try and compress this. So I joined the Royal Air Force pretty much straight out of school when I was 18. I wanted to do that since I was nine years old. I remember the first air show I went to with my dad, saw the phantoms come screaming in, saw the Vulcan, just had shivers down my spine as I heard these things. And I thought, I don't care what I do. I just want to be involved and engage with that thing up there. Uh, so I joined the Air Cadets, I spent five years there, did my flying scholarship with the Air Cadets that the Air Force sponsored me for, uh, joined the Air Force pretty much straight out of school. And... Straight away, I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the ability to look at things differently. I ended up becoming a fighter controller, so controlling aircraft in combat environments, high-speed fighter aircraft, uh, and learning how to manage many different things at the same time, listening to multiple radios, controlling multiple aircraft, and different missions. So 
it was really for a young guy to be given that responsibility of multi-million pound equipment, lives, and obviously flying around civilian airspace with airliners getting in the way of me and my jets careering around at 400 knots plus. I just found that, A, a huge responsibility, uh, B, massively challenging, but C, a lot of fun. It was just really interesting, really exciting, working with great people. And that's where the real sort of understanding of teamwork, people, and how they all integrate and be much bigger than the sum of the parts, if you will. And that's where I got into the sort of aspects of the psychology of how we work, not just how we do the work, but how do we work together? How do we work well? How do we work badly? And where all that comes from? So that was very early on in my career that that sort of spark went off inside me. And then looking at things differently, I enjoyed my Air Force job, but I always wanted to do something different. So I was applying for a job in Cyprus, which I got. I then went to work in Sardinia, working at a tri-national air base with Germans, Italians, and then we had all sorts of different countries coming in. So again, working with different people, working with different cultures, and allowing me to, again, expand my mind and understanding of just how people as human beings operate and integrate together. And then... Again, still love my job in the Air Force, but I heard about this job with the US Marine Corps uh, that a colleague of mine was doing, and they had an exchange program where there's about 50 different officers from the UK military swapped across to the US, and they send their officers across here. And we had, for fighter control, we had one slot with the US Marine Corps in wonderful Yuma in Arizona, which is probably one of the hottest places <laughs> in North America. And I applied for this job and got it. So I went out there again, not really understanding what I was going into, no expectations, but got there and really got thrown in the deep end to become an instructor at their weapons and tactics uh, institute, uh, basically a Marine Corps Top Gun schoolhouse, if you will, where they do lots of gain, big integrated training, all different aspects of the Marine Corps from aviation to tanks to ships, you know, boots on the ground, logistics, every piece of moving part in that whole capability thrust together for six weeks to learn how to operate together. So again, going back to how do people become effective? And we'd do three weeks in the classroom, doing all the theory, almost like an hourglass. You know, you'd start wide, bring it down to your niche, and then you'd go live and go out to the desert and do this for real with live weapons, live people. And, you know, there were incidents. Aircraft fall, you know, aircraft crash, things fall out of the sky, people die in training. There's that whole mentality of train as you fight, you fight as you train. And if you train hard, then you fight easy. And that's one of the sort of ethoses of most military forces is that these things happen, but you're pushing the envelope in training to be as good as you can be when it comes to do the real thing. And I was there for 2000 to 2003, so there during 9-11. And obviously from that, I got the opportunity then to deploy out to Iraq as a US Marine to support the uh, invasion of Iraq at the time. Uh, so again, huge experience, an opportunity to take what I'd probably learned over the last 11 years to that point into a combat zone, working again in a very multi-coalition environment. And again, working with just different people and understanding how different people were working, how we all tick with each other, how we don't tick sometimes and how you bring all these different viewpoints together to get the outcomes we need. And that's probably where my sort of first experience of red teaming 
came to the fore because, and then red teaming in the military, it's very much a war gaming phenomena. So it's understanding if we do something, the blue team, what is the enemy going to do the red team? And then how do we counter that proposal and their plans? So that's kind of where I got to, came back fortunate enough to do a lot more variety jobs. I was an airfield director at Lynham in Wiltshire, joint headquarters job in Northwood. And then my final job, I got to be one of the uh, national representatives doing the air defense and security of the UK at the time of the Olympics in 2012. So if you remember the newspapers where we had the big ship outside the O2 with helicopters on with snipers, we had fast jets brought into Northolt, we had missiles on rooftops and in parks around London, which caused quite a furore. We were coordinating all of that from the headquarters in High Wycombe and working with Prime Minister Cameron at the time and the Cabinet Office, helping them understand how you provide air security for obviously a massive global event that 2012 was. And I did all that. And then that was a sort of pinnacle of my career. I thought, how does it get any better than this, having done what I've done? And I was young enough at that point to think, if I don't retire now, am I going to get into that age bracket where it's going to be harder to get a second career if I stay on again? So... I retired from the military at 42 and didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to leave and try something different. So on, on one of these courses, I bumped into a helicopter pilot who was exactly the same as me. He said, I've no idea. I just want to you know, get out and try something different. So we set up a small defense consultancy, stick to what we know. We did that for a year and I got a gig that allowed me to work three days a week, paid me for five. So I had two days a week off. And I wore a pair of shoes out by walking around, meeting people from every different industry. Because before I committed into another career, I wanted to be sure. So I went to speak to Virgin, looking at the head of security for Virgin Airways, looking how to be a store manager for John Lewis, looking at the oil and gas industry. You know, I just left every stone out there turned over as I walked through because I wanted to see what there was. And I had a great conversation with a gentleman at a Morgan Stanley, who advised me, he said, stay away from banking. He said, go into consultancy because that's going to feed your clear desire to do different stuff. And if you go into consultancy, you'll get to dabble in all these different environments. So I did, met three different consultancies, whittled that down and ended up going into Capgemini because they didn't have a military practice because all the other consultants kept trying to push me back into doing military stuff. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And I've done that. I want something different. So I joined Capgemini and from there got to work a lot with government and ultimately moved into banking with Lloyd's banking group. And from there really enjoyed again, working with people from a very different background. You know, my, my 20 plus years in the military, I'm now working with the civvies, if you will. Uh, and I'm now a civvy amongst them and really understanding how do you fit the piece of the puzzle that I was into this new new puzzle because it is a very different game moving across. But obviously, there's a lot of similarities as well. So it was really interesting couple of years of bedding myself in and understanding that shift in behavior, in mindset that you have to approach a civilian world with. And then from there, I got into the whole agile transformation big digital change programs, left Capgemini, stayed on at Lloyd's, became the head of Agile for a big transformation program there. And then finished that for about three and a half years, moved into Royal Bank of Scotland to do something similar. And then, and this is where I'm talking about relationships, 
the helicopter guy I mentioned who we met on this course together called me and said, you need to meet Bryce Hoffman. And he'd been introduced to Bryce. Really? Yeah. And he Small said, you world. know, you've got to do this. So he introduced me to Bryce and we just kept in touch. I'd just taken on this big contract at Royal Bank of Scotland, so I couldn't move into the sort of red team in space. Uh, so we kept in touch for a year. And then a year later, he was back in London. I just finished this gig. We met up, had some curry and beer and good conversation. And then I went out to New York to do a gig with him with a client just to see how things operate, see how we got along, see how the tools were working. And after that, the rest is history, if you will. So that's how I got there, to the bromance blossomed. Indeed, watching fast jet phantoms to working with red team thinking today. Fast paced, Bryce. It's fast paced. <laughs> it's just fast a different pace. kind of fast. All the way. There's a few pieces there that I think are really interesting to sort of unpack, uh, and sort of just listening to to your language there. So often you've proactively chased down the opportunity to work with diverse people and people that are different from you. How, how important do you think that is to surround yourself with people who maybe have a, a, a different worldview than you hold so you can learn lessons from them? Because what I see, especially in the sort of the big corporates that, that you guys sort of, um, sort of consult towards, it's easy to surround yourself with yes people or people that have the same sort of world order that you do in yeah. order that you are always right. And obviously a big part of Red Team is like, well, what happens if the alternative occurs and having that mindset is kind of difficult to install. So, so, so why is it, why have you found it so important to surround yourself and practically chase down diversity and, and why do companies fear it? Uh, that's a great question. And, and I have chased it down without a doubt from my first job. And I think it was, I very quickly realized on my first job that I was in a tribe, you know, and there's a whole, stovepipes of military behaviors and you've got the army versus the navy versus the air force and, the, and, and then within the air force you've got the pilots you've got the controllers you've got everybody's got their little tribe and that's a good thing because it you know it encourages healthy spirit banter competition and camaraderie but as you said you start to think alike you start to get groupthink. you get the echo chamber because everyone's gone through the same training same locations and very early on i started working with people who were very senior to me and been in, you know, my sort of idols had been in the military 20 years, but they'd spent their whole career doing seven, three year tours across the same set of bases, doing the same kind of work. And the thought of that just petrified me. I thought that's not what I joined the military for. So I started to look for these diverse opportunities to go and work with diverse people. And, and I think the comparison to the U commercial world is why don't people do that? Because it scares them. I mean, Christ, I'm not going to lie. When I got the Marine Corps job, I am leaving my comfortable position where I'm very highly regarded, very capable, very comfortable in my ability in the UK doing my job. And then I'm flying to Arizona to get dropped into this unknown entity with a hundred co-instructors from the Marine Corps who were all the, you know, the top gun, the best of the best kind of equivalent. These guys were the A, A category operators being sent by their squadrons to this instructor house to become instructors of instructors. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, and I went there thinking, hey, faint heart, you know, you've got to get in there and have a go. And as always, get in there. I keep my mouth shut. I observe. I learn quickly. And then you step up. But, you know, you prepare. You do what you need to do. 
And that's why from that, I then went to the Royal Marines, to the Royal Navy, Special Forces Air Cell, running airfields, because it's a challenge. And I've always, and I've said this when I was talking to Amy Edmonds on her podcast, you know, if I get up in the morning and I don't feel like I want to go to work or do whatever I'm supposed to be doing, I won't. I'll get back to bed and that thing's done and I'll need to find something else. Because if it's not stimulating me, if it's not challenging me, then I don't see the point in doing it. And I think there's that balance where people are happy with, sadly, what becomes mediocrity. What we see in the commercial world is people don't want that challenge, don't want to step out of their comfort zone. And we know the best learning happens when you step outside of your comfort zone. Even if you make a mistake, that's what you learn from. So I was always willing to step out of my comfort zone, step into a different room. You know, when you're the only light blue uniform that walks into a room with 350 greens in there, you know, however big a dick you're swinging, however great you think you are, that is intimidating. You know, so you've got to put that front on, you know, fake it till you make it. It's all about the blag. You know, you've got to go in there, but also know that you know more than them because you're brought into that room because you're the expert. You're wearing light blue for a reason. You're the air expert that they don't have, but they need. So you've got to go in with that confidence that you are able to help them. But also I went in there and was like, okay, teach me. What is it you do? Yeah, I'm an air guy, but what is it you do? I'm really interested just to learn because like anything, I find that the more you know about people, the things that they do, it makes you a better operator. It makes you a better work colleague. It makes you a better person. It makes you a more worldly, you know, broader perspective on things because whether it's the lady who cleans the office as you walk in in the morning to the guy on the gate checking your pass to the individual serving you know your coffees all these people I think have a richness of character which we can all learn from and if you disassociate yourself because you think you're in a specific tribe and you can't speak to anyone else or you think you're above them then I think you're missing an absolute trick in life of not allowing yourself to have that diversity of input, which allows you to have diversity of thought far more than you would have individually. Mm. Fascinating. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that train hard, fight easy mentality and how someone who has been the only blue in a room full of 350 greens instills that into the commercial environment. Stay there. We'll be back after this. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. So welcome back to the Thinking Leader podcast. We're having a fascinating conversation um, behind the scenes and in front of the camera and in front of the <laughs> microphone as well. And yeah, just as a as a person who looks through Marcus's LinkedIn bio and accolades and feels like an inferior human being, he assures me that I'm not, but I think he's just being kind to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I am. What I'm really interested in, obviously sort of bringing it back to a context that the majority of the listeners can understand, 
we've talked about groupthink, we've talked about conditioning, we've talked about, um, you know, that sort of like diverse background. One of the things, again, that comes out really strongly from the conversations that I've had with you as part of this podcast and as as sort of that I've been sort of um, privileged to have with you offline before is that you, and you said this earlier on, observe and learn, observe and learn. You go into a situation, you're the one blue in 350 greens, you're you could quite easily go there and be intimidated. You could also quite easily go there and be the cock of the walk because if you're the one, you know, there's 350 of them, but you're the elite one of one in that environment, it gives you certain stature and status. Did anybody teach you to observe and learn? Did anyone teach you to stand back and watch first? Did anyone teach you? My dad, my old dad used to say to me, two ears and one mouth. I suggest you use it in that ratio, young man. <laughs> um, but I wish I didn't re- really understand at the time. Or did you just yeah. pick this up through reps and sets? Or did someone say to you, like, was it part of your training? No, it's, well, it goes back to what you said. My grandma used that same line with me. I learned so right. much from my grandma and granddad who, you know, I'd go and spend time with them. My mum and dad used to be dance instructors, so I'd get to be babysat by my grandma and granddad as like a 7 to 12-year-old. And I learned so much stuff just from the the sort of life chats that those sort of grandparents like to share with a young and to keep me on the straight and narrow. And, and they all stuck with me throughout time, and I've got loads of sort of – and they all – you know, two years, one mouth, very much stuck. But I, I learned a lot of that through Air Cadets, which again was a sort of young 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 person's military opportunity to sample how militaries operate and behave. But again, working with different groups of people, seeing dynamics through characters, through different ranks, through different ages, and working with kids and adults in that environment it's very easy to trip up, to slip up, to say the wrong thing, to step out of line. And it's okay, but sometimes that can backfire badly for you or for the group. So I very quickly watched people do that. And I thought, that's not an outcome I want to be part of. So I'll just observe. And I think that's very early where I did that on as a young teen, took that into my first job. And there's a... uh, there's an article I've got on LinkedIn saying, you know, are you a social gadfly? And my first tour, I went in, observed for a few months, you know, got my confidence, got some credibility. But then I started picking things up. And the boss called me in one day and he said, Marcus, sir, uh, I've not had complaints, but I've had concerns raised by some of the more senior people that you are picking fault, that you are calling things out what's going on? And uh, I said, what do you mean, sir? He goes, well, you, you're, you're a bit of, I call it a social gadfly. And this was 1990. I didn't even know what a gadfly was at that point. There was no internet. I thought it meant a social butterfly, you know, having seen my uh, my mess bill from the bar. And uh, so I told him, I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm seeing these things. I've learned what I've been taught at the schoolhouse. I'm now learning day-to-day, watching people. I'm just picking up a few things that I think could be done better or questioning why they're done that way, you know, your status quo bias. I said, and if somebody can't give me a good enough reason, I'm going to challenge them. I said, and what we might have here is a situation where some of these people don't like the young guy asking questions and saying, wouldn't this be a better way? Should we try it? No, we've always done it that way. I'm not going to take that. And I said to myself, look, last time I checked, I'm an officer. When I went through officer training, 
I was taught that officers are there to lead, to challenge, to see things in a different way, to help people see things differently, to help people become their best selves, etc. I said, so if I'm stepping out of line and stepping on a few toes, tough. So how it is, that's what I'm here to do. And he's like, good. That's what I want you to do. Keep doing it. Come back to me every two weeks, report what you're finding and we'll, and we created this improvement program. And ultimately it, you know, people liked it. People saw the benefit of it. And this became a sort of standard of how we then operated rather than we've always done it that way. So I think that's, that's where I've always had that observe and learn perspective. And you don't have to take a long time, depending on the organization, depending on the position. You can walk in a room and observe for three minutes and then step in. You can go to a new organization and observe for three months, depending. When I went to Lynham, I got dropped in there and I took over the running of the airfield, like the operations director of managing an airfield, supporting frontline operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. I didn't have time to sit and observe for three months. You know, I observed for a week during my handover with the individual I replaced, making a lot, but then it was straight into it. Right, here's my here's what I've seen, here's what I think. But I got the feedback from the teams, the people we were working with, the people I was observing, the people who were working for me. I was like, right, I've been here a week. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've observed. Here's what I've witnessed. In. This doesn't look right. This looks amazing. How can we do more of that? And then I just sat back and let them outpour to me what they were feeling, what they were seeing. And often you find in those situations, those people never given the opportunity to speak up. Mm. And it is like a reverse fire hose. They're just like, wow, let me tell you all these things. So I ended up having one-on-one -on -one interviews with all of my 40 staff to basically come to me with a, here's what needs to change list. Here's the things I'm seeing that could be better. Here's what we're doing really well we need to do more of. So I think that opportunity to observe as a human being is just a great quality to have. And whether it's a minute, whether it's a month, whether it's a year, context depending, the richness you're going to get from that and your ability to then respond. And we talk about responding rather than reacting. And reacting is an ill thought out you know, action, whereas a response is something that's considered, it's fed with information that allows you to be responsive to a problem or a situation that you're facing. How do you proactively, because um, what I'm hearing you say there is you've, you're, you're challenging, then you're changing. Yep. You're not almost just going, right, hello, I'm the new guy in charge of the airfield. Um, thanks for your service. Uh, you're now going to do it the way that I want to do it because effectively I'm now the airfield boss. How important yep. is it for business owners, CEOs, CTOs, CMOs, whoever it is, maybe those C-suite people, to positively challenge and then change because fundamentally your job is to do the best job that you can do you have to create create betterment yeah. for that that airfield in that instance so you're going to do what you're going to do what you think you need Correct. to do but people are either going to go with you or they're going to go against you frankly yeah. so is it kind of you you challenge then you change or do you change then challenge or how do you, how do you take people on that journey invariably challenge first and then make the change and when it's challenge, it's, it's asking them for input as well. If there's something of a safety issue or immediate requirement needs to change, then you change and then you take the challenge afterwards because that's ultimately the buck stops with you. So when you're in safety, flight operations, lives on the line, if something needs to change, I'm going to bloody change it. No debate. The buck stops with me. If there's an incident and I've got to go and see somebody's family because they're no longer here, 
I'm now going to make that call. It's like David Marquet talks about in the submarine. He would not relinquish pushing the nuclear button. That's his mandate to do that. Uh, but going back to businesses, so often you see, and we saw this in the military, new people come in, make change for the sake of being seen to be making change because they're doing something different. That's clearly good. That change doesn't stick because you've not brought the people on the journey with you. So you can make that change stick for the three years you're there or two years. Then the minute you leave, that change will dissipate and go back to as it was because nobody went on that journey with you. But by going in and saying, look, this doesn't look right or this is great, we need to do more or I sense there's some issues here, what do you think? And what would you do? You know, I used to do a great line. I had a little corner office overlooking the ops room. The guys had come in, so everyone could always see what I was doing. It wasn't a closed door and there's windows everywhere. People are coming. I sit down and go, right, if you were sat on this side of the desk, what would you change? What would you do? And this is like a junior corporal who's been in the Air Force, you know, five minutes. Did they think it was a trick question? Yeah, on my most senior <laughs> warrant officer who's been in the Air Force 40 years. And they were like, I've never thought of that. I said, well, I suggest you start thinking because I want you thinking every day as if you're me. And also think about what my boss is thinking and what's the station commander thinking. And when the pilots come in to check an aircraft out, what are they thinking? We have to be thinking not only about ourselves, and this goes back to that diversity of thought and diverse groups to work with, you know, and they go, but, you know, but I'm just a corporal, sir. Don't ever say you're just a something. You know, whether you're just the cleaner or just the CEO of NASA, you know, irrelevant. You are a vital piece in the whole mechanism, the system. Take that on board first. Accept that responsibility you've got as a corporal doing a phenomenal job that's very important. And then look around. What are you seeing that's not working? What are you seeing that could be done better? Why would we not do that? Well, no one's ever asked me, sir. Well, I'm asking you now. What would you do? And just capture that. And before you know it, you've got a backlog of stuff that needs doing. And then when people see it getting done and they see you fighting for their corner and getting the funding or bringing more people in or getting advocacy from somewhere else, they're like, okay, this, this guy's serious. He listens. We can get stuff done. And then the whole culture of that organization will move into that way of thinking. The mindset shift will happen. And then when you leave, and this is the whole premise, isn't it? The great general is the one who can step off the battlefield and the war carries on. You know, Nelson got shot going into Trafalgar and they won because he prepared his teams, his officers, his sailors to operate without him. And that goes back to that commander's intent, commander's direction, not commander's doing. You know, you're not, if, you're, if you just constantly keep doing the work for your people or micromanaging them, the day you're not there, what are they going to do? They go into paralysis. They sit around going, the boss isn't in today. I don't know what to do. I've got to wait until he tells me what I need to do. Whereas if you say, the boss has told me to look for things that need changing, come up with recommendations, experiment and try it, then I'm going to do that whether the boss is here or not. And when he even leaves and moves on and the next boss comes in, that boss is going to meet a group of people who are free-thinking, innovative, challenging, but doing it in an agreeable, professional, collegiate way. And I think that's where businesses and the ones we work with see that and create that capability. Your hands off, you're done. The, great, the greatest thing a leader can do is become irrelevant because 
you're not needed. You've done the stuff you need to do. When I left Lloyd's, we had an amazing team of people there. We were worried that the program we were going to roll out and had rolled out. I left three months after it had rolled out. We thought it was just going to crash. It's still running now. My wife left there last summer, five years later. It's still running as the core capability program because that team I left behind didn't need me anymore. They were more than capable. So that, to me, is that empowerment. You hear the buzzword empowerment. Can't empower someone by telling them they're empowered. You have to engage them. You have to enable them. You've got to give them clarity so they know what they're doing, why they're doing it. You've got to give them the capability. Are you enabling that person? Are you upskilling them? Are you training them? Are you paying for them to get the skills they need? And then are they capable and confident cognitively and technically to do what they need to do? Then the culture follows all of that. But if you don't do those things up front, then when you do step away, they're going to fail. They're going to break. They're going to collapse because you've not prepared them to do what's needed. And I think rather than organizations trying to run all these things from the top in a very command and control fashion, you need to delegate that capability, but you've got to establish that capability itself before you take the hands off the reins. I could quite happily talk to you for 17 hours nonstop uh, <laughs> until the point where you fell asleep giving me answers, but I think we better wrap it up there. That's a beautiful point to, to finish. I've got, I've got my list of questions here. Groupthink, murder board, sheltered conditions, tribe psychology. We'll have to, we'll have to do it. We'll have to come back and do it to part do a two. part two. Um, Final question, though, that I will sort of chuck in your direction. Obviously, we mentioned about groupthink earlier on. And obviously, yeah. in, in, a, in an environment like the military, I say obviously, I'm guessing as a as a, 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 a grateful citizen and civilian, I'm imagining that groupthink is kind of this is the way that we've done it. This is the way that we always do it. This is the way that you will do it. You challenge the status quo. It, it, it sort of it, accidentally, you're almost using red team strategy because you're going, well, why are we doing it this way? What if we did it in a different way? But coming at it instead of being combative, being collaborative, but trying to get to a different outcome. Correct. How as business owners can you start to proactively create an environment where group think doesn't take over the business that you do have those people who are willing to be like you were uh, an outlier that would call stuff out that would put your neck on the line would step into the boss's office and go dimbleby why are you saying this well i think it's wrong sir so that's what i'm going to do because that's my job to do how do you yeah. curate and create that environment where group think doesn't take over and you you create your own um officer dimblebees who are willing to stand up against the status quo yeah it's it, it's perceived as a tough thing to do all right, and this is where we talk about these toxic cultures, the culture of fear, and I've seen a lot of that, especially in the big banks, the big organizations, government, even in the military. And unless you get the old individual like me, and there's a few of us out there who'll just, what the hell, step up and say it and be down with the consequences, then you have to enable that environment. And one of the buzzwords, again, going around, as well as empowerment, is psychological safety. So do you have an environment where it is psychologically safe for that individual to speak up, to challenge? And invariably, no, right? Even though they'll say there is psychological safety. You know, I know I went to an organization, I spoke to the CEO, and we talked about some of these words. And he said, oh, Mark, I've heard of psychological safety. We have that in my organization. I'm like, do you, Bob, really? I said, can you explain how? He goes, uh, yes, my people have psychological safety. I said, again? Lovely. Can you explain how it goes? Because I told them they do. 
It's like, okay. <laughs> what and a then you Bob go talk, job. Exactly. Nice one. And then you go and talk to these people and they go, no, I'm not speaking up. Steve did that last time. Didn't get his bonus. Sheila spoke up last time. And Sheila went within three months. So there's this culture of fear. And so many organizations are trying to get this culture of innovation, culture of engagement. You can't change culture. You can't change mindset. What you have to do is change behaviors. And it's this beautiful, virtuous circle of change behavior. That will change perspective, which will change mindset. Change mindset, that will change culture. Culture then allows the behaviors you want to flourish and become more done by others. So Daniel Kahneman talks about you have to protect your dissenters. So if I dissent in the business and people see me dissent, the bosses have got two options. They either slay me, put me back in my box because they don't like what I'm saying, or they encourage me, they welcome my dissent, and they do something about it. And in doing so, others see that and they speak up. So that's what you need to do in any organization is enable people to be engaged, to speak up, to challenge. But how do you do that? And that's what's really difficult. So the tools and techniques we've got with Red Team Thinking, simple one, think, write, share, anonymous. Allow people to speak up, answer questions using this technique. Think about the question you've been asked. Think about the problem we're facing, right? Properly think, engage your brain about this problem. Now write that down and you can write it on a digital tool, write it on a post-it with all the same Sharpies, stick it in a box, stick it on a wall, have someone collect it. And then you share it with a group and someone can facilitate and share that. Someone can shuffle them and they all read out whoever's. You don't know who's got what. So nobody there. And we did this yesterday. We did a presentation yesterday and a load of people just filling out all these boxes digitally. No one knew who was saying what. So there's no biases going on because nobody could be biased because they couldn't see. Nobody was worried about who said what and who knew I said it. And then when you revealed it, the discussion that then followed because of all these great ideas that nobody would surface before came to the forefront. And from that, you can go, right, that's really important. Let's vote on these things now that are having the most impact. What's going to cause us the most issues as a group, as an individual? And then people go, wow, we've just all engaged together. I call it big room thinking. There's this big room planning that goes on a lot in organizations. Forget that. Do some big room thinking. Goes back to that first conversation we had, diversity of thought, diverse people in a room allowed to speak up confidently because it's anonymous that over over time and very quickly over time creates trust so the minute they know they can speak up and it gets heard they'll speak up without worrying about being anonymous and then you get a free thinking organization but they're able to challenge in a way that is agreeable that is provocative but professional they're not the asshole just calling stuff out because well that's not going to bloody work well that's really helpful thank you for that insightful criticism you know that's not going to work because I see the problem here, problem there, and the downrange effect of that happening is going to cause dropping the market, customers to leave, aircraft to explode, whatever. But it's that ability to allow people to think that way and have the confidence to speak up in a, in a position where they don't need to be confident to do so. But that will breed the confidence you need to do that. So that's my advice is to create your own dissenters, encourage them, support them, and enable them and do that with some of these tools and techniques that are super simple, liberating structures are another set of tools you can look at. And in doing so, you will have an innovative, engaged and empowered organization. And you won't have to tell them that's what they are. That's what they will be.
Amazing stuff. For, for anyone who's listening going, this stuff sounds incredible. If you click the link in the show notes, there's actually a link that will take you through to a red team assessment. So you can actually look at how well you are operating a level of red team thinking within your organization. If any of this has touched a nerve, if any of this has slightly jarred you, put your nose out of joint, or conversely, Sorry on the back and we do that stuff. We do that. That's brilliant. Then click the link in the show notes now and you can actually download a whole assessment and you can see how well you guys score with with exactly these sort of methodologies within your business. Um, Marcus, you are fast becoming one of my most intelligent friends and favorite people to have a conversation <laughs> with. Um, and I love the fact that you hate the fact, uh, I love the fact that you hate um, the adulation. It makes me like you even more, I but do. to throw it at you hate even more, it. but I've loved this conversation. Um, thank you for um, sharing a bit of your journey and a bit of the insight and the wisdom that you've picked up along the way, uh, which has got you to the position that you're in right now. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Thinking Leader podcast. And again, if you want more information about anything that's being covered in this show, click the link in the show notes right now and make sure if you're watching this on YouTube, you also hit the subscribe button and the notification bell so you find out every time a new episode goes live. We'll be back on a future, well, we won't be back. I've probably been sacked. This, this is it. Um, this was my, my highlights. I've been, I'm going out on a bang, guys. <laughs> Bryce and Marks will be back uh, on the next episode of the Thinking Leader podcast. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.